congregation, please stand as you're able and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Give careful attention to the reading of this, the very Word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The Word of our God. Now please turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4, beginning at verse 4, reading through verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word of the living God. And finally, turn back a page or two to the book of Galatians. Chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, beginning again at verse 16 and reading to the end of the chapter. Of course, our focus this morning is on a single word, the word joy. Galatians 5, verse 16, again, hear the word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. As for the reading of God's Word, may He add His blessing to it. Let's pray. Lord, as our brother has already prayed, we ask for the blessing of Your Almighty Spirit upon the preaching of Your Word. We know that many words can be spoken in this place from this pulpit, and yet there is not a single ounce of spiritual benefit to the hearers unless Your Spirit works mightily within us. And so we pray, Lord, whether there are those who do not believe, who do not belong, as yet in their life to Christ, or whether there are those among us who do. We pray that Your Spirit might work mightily in all of us to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to understand, to lay hold of the glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, the One who loved sinners and gave Himself up for sinners like us. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give us understanding now, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Be seated. Well, it's a good thing that my own dear mother on this earth has rather thick skin because she at times inevitably gets mentioned from the pulpit. Um, you know, I have memories like you do, and one of my earliest memories was being awakened, um, and I might add as a young person, sort of unwillingly, awakened by the sound of my mother's voice on occasion uh, with a little evangelical ditty that if you grew up in the church, you are well acquainted with. I'm not going to sing it. Trust me, it's better that way. Happy, 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 happy. Happy are the children whose God is the Lord. Now, that word happy became something of the opposite to what was intended. Um, I think the message was, young man, come up out of the bed with a smile on your face and proceed throughout the day to honor the Lord and to serve Him and to go about your business in a genuinely happy way the effect on it as i recall was quite the opposite 
but there was another song uh, that was sang very frequently that corresponds to the first one. And it's the relationship between these two terms that I want us to think about here this morning a little bit. Uh, it's the relationship between happy on the one hand and joyful on the other. Are they the same? Are they fundamentally different? Are they related in some way, though not identical? What's the relationship between these two words? Well, the other song was, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And then the part that I really like, down in my heart to stay. Now, of course, there were other parts to that song that I'm not going to sing. And my point here in bringing up these two songs is not really to throw my mother under the bus for singing them uh, or teaching them to me or tormenting me with them at the early hours of the morning, but rather to put before you uh, this thought. What do you think of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you think about Jesus Christ, do you, do you think the happiest individual that ever walked the earth? Do you think, actually, he was rather dour and unhappy? Do you view Jesus Christ as the most joyful person that ever walked the face of the earth? Or do you view Jesus Christ as dour, as a killjoy, as walking around gruff and fundamentally serious at every moment, at every opportunity, squelching joy wherever he went? Now, I think if we're honest... There's some pocket in our minds and hearts that entertains the thought that Jesus really wasn't all that happy, nor was he really all that joyful. Now, we can use happy interchangeably, and you'll notice this in your translations of the Word of God. You will have sections such as the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, sometimes translated blessed, sometimes happy. There are places where it should be joy or gladness, and it's translated happy or happiness. They can be used interchangeably as long as we understand what it is that we're talking about. They're not strictly synonymous, and especially in our culture today, that views happiness as just sort of this externally related thing, sort of the plastic smile, but we'll get to that in just a moment. What we want to do this morning is we consider that the fruit of the Spirit, and remember, it's a package deal, one fruit of the Spirit, it's the Spirit's fruit in us to the glory of God. Last week, love. This week, joy. What is joy? We want to ask that question. We want to define joy carefully, illustrate it from Scripture on the one hand, and then we want to turn to see the source of all true joy, even our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And then finally, we want to draw out some implications, or you might say applications, of a life of joy in covenant with God. So we're going to define and describe, and then we're going to look at the source, and then we're going to turn and say, what does that have to do with me and with us as the people of the living God? So first of all, how do we define joy? I'm going to give you just a sampling of what's been attempted. John Brown, one of, if you say, which John Brown? Uh, not the one infamous in the South, uh, but in Scottish Presbyterianism, there were lots of John Browns. And to be totally honest, I couldn't find which one it was when I went back through my notes. One of the John Browns in Scotland said, 
that joy is a holy cheerfulness. That joy is a holy cheerfulness. Now you'll see what he's doing right away. You cannot define joy as cheerfulness. You have to have a modifier. You have to describe true joy as a holy, a sanctified cheerfulness. It's God-centered. More recent writer, Jonathan Landry Cruz, wrote that joy is a deep and abiding pleasure and contentment. Well, that's importing other words to help us understand the idea of joy, a deep and abiding pleasure and contentment. And of course, he presupposes that it's rooted and grounded in God himself. John Eady, 19th century commentator, said this, joy is based on the possession of present good. And here means that spiritual gladness which acceptance with God and change of heart produce. It is opposed to dullness, despondency, indifference, and all the distractions and remorses which are wrought by the works of the flesh. Now that's a mouthful, and we might need it again. But notice what John Eady is doing here. He's packing together a multifaceted definition of joy because joy is not this monolithic thing. It's not this singular entity. It has to be described in a variety of different ways with a number of different qualifications, else it's not true joy. Hear it again. Joy is based upon possession of present good. Now we'll talk about what kind of present good in just a few moments. But it's the possession of present good, and here means that spiritual gladness, which acceptance with God and change of heart produce. Regeneration, justification. These are the rootedness of true joy. It is opposed to dullness, despondency or despair, indifference, in other words, I don't care, and all the distractions and remorses which are wrought by the works of the flesh. So Edie's filling it out more for us. It's helpful sometimes to understand what joy is not. And Edie was getting at that at the end of his definition. But one thing that helps us greatly is to see a particular text of Scripture. And if you turn to John 16, I think you'll see this with Pretty great clarity. John chapter 16. This is a text where we see joy and sorrow side by side. John chapter 16, upper room discourse, last words of Jesus to his disciples, his intimate teaching in that upper room. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, and he's speaking of his departure, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Isn't that interesting? You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And there you see it. 
Jesus will go away. Their hearts will be burdened with sorrow at the loss of their master. But joy comes in the morning, as we see in Psalm 30. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And finally, in verse 24, the point, until now you've asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive. Why? That your joy may be full. So we can see here that there is a challenger to joy in the Christian life, namely sorrow. It's not exactly the opposite of joy. As we'll see, it is a characteristic trademark of Christian joy that we can have legitimate sorrow in our lives and yet be a joyful people. Now, this is a complete anomaly to the world. The world looks at this and has no idea what's going on. How in the world can you Christians sing songs to God of praise and adoration at a funeral? How can you do that? And the only answer to that question is because the source of joy is deep and abiding. It is worked in us by God and not ourselves. In and of ourselves, there would be nothing but despondency and sorrow, even despair in the context of a funeral because we would have no hope beyond the grave. But the believer has hope beyond the grave. He does not grieve as the unbeliever does who has no hope, but rather he grieves in hope and even rooted in joy in the Holy Spirit. Well, let's look at the counterfeits quickly of true joy. And there are really five things here that we can look at very quickly. Joy that does not issue in the Christian life in growth in and love for holiness is not true joy. You could have the person in life that uh, looks joyful on the outside, that seems to be quite happy and content and full of uh, pleasantness, and yet, if it never issues in holiness of life, then it is no better than what we see in the parable of the sower with the stony ground hearer there's no rootedness in such a person they outwardly for a while will look perfectly joyful and then it'll all be gone because it will wither secondly a counterfeit of joy is is a joy that is that plastic grin that we put upon our faces or an irrational optimism And notice, I didn't say there's anything wrong with optimism. Optimism is a good and necessary thing, especially in the Word of God. But an irrational optimism. In other words, it's just, well, it it, it just has to get better. Uh, Everything's going to turn out okay. Well, from the perspective that God causes all things to work together for good, that's certainly true. But, beloved, we have no assurances, for instance, when there are terminal diseases that we deal with that that the Lord is just going to wipe those away, that He's going to cause us to live forever here on this earth, that He's going to cause death to be spared to any of us. No. No, that would be an irrational optimism. Or perhaps this. 
an optimism, an irrational optimism that there just won't be any problems in our relationships, in our families, in our churches. Says who? Or perhaps an irrational optimism that if we just act a certain way that the world will accept us and not persecute us. Irrational is just another way of saying not according to the Word of God, you say. But that plastic grinned happiness as well. You know, we can, any of us, force that smile upon our faces. And sometimes this is actually a good thing. You know, if you are one that struggles with a rather dour countenance, and you're kind of known for that, sometimes it's a good thing for you to force that smile upon your face on occasion. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the person who views themselves and wants other people to view them as particularly happy and joyful by the very presence of that external cheerfulness. That by itself is not what we mean by Christian joy. Thirdly, a joy that centers in worldly things. Our individual success or our accomplishments, the things that we can get for ourselves. Now, how often does this happen? You know, that feeling of elation when perhaps you've grown up just broke as the day is long. And for the first time ever, you can buy a decent car. And you drive off of the lot and you're in that car and there's just this sense of euphoria. You know, the, that hormone is being released out of your brain and you feel really, really good. And you think to yourself, I'm just so joyful. This is just a happy moment. That falls short of the biblical definition of true joy. Or fourthly, a joy that seeks to elevate self rather than to glorify God. Usually because we desire the praise of men. That is not what we mean by biblical joy. And finally, a joy that primarily derives from our spiritual accomplishments or victories. Now here we're distinguishing. When we have things in our lives where we have overcome or put sin to death, we ought to rejoice about these things, but not in our ability to put sin to death. It should always have a Godward focus. And so when we find ourselves celebrating our spiritual victories or our growth in grace, and it's not immediately attached to dependence upon God, if it's not immediately attached to a desire to see God's name glorified, then it's not true joy. Well, it's the true nature of joy. William Hendrickson, you might be familiar with him for his New Testament commentaries, gives us a bridge from the counterfeit to joy and real joy. He says this, the joy of the Christian is not that of the world, a mirth which is superficial, external, and fails to satisfy the deepest needs of the soul. But true joy, he says, is a joy unspeakable, inexpressible, as Peter says, and full of glory. And it's a foretaste of the radiant raptures that are still in store for Christ's followers. A brothel, a 
systematic theologian from long ago wrote this, and this is quite profound and helpful. He says, this spiritual joy consists in a delightful motion of the soul generated by the Holy Spirit in the heart of believers, whereby He convinces them of the felicity, oh, what a word, the happiness of their state, causes them to enjoy the benefits of the covenant and assures them of their future felicity or happiness. So a delightful motion of the soul that is caused by, given to as a gift, the Holy Spirit in our hearts by which we are convinced primarily of two things. Number one, we have a happy state. In our catechism, we would call that not the state of humiliation, but children what? The state of salvation by a Redeemer. This is our happy state of which the Spirit convinces us. But there's more. We are caused to enjoy all the benefits that we have in covenant with our God now. And then finally, he says, we are assured of our future felicity or our future, and we should say eternal, happiness. So this is starting to get at what true joy is. Now, there's a key text to illustrate the difference between true and false joy. And that text is Luke 10. If you want to flip back from John there, Luke chapter 10. Jesus had sent out the disciples two by two. And he had given them authority over demons in order to cast out evil spirits, in order to heal. And they come and report back to the Lord Jesus. And this is fascinating here. In verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now notice, they are ecstatic. And frankly, we would be too. If the Lord Jesus had given us such a power and we were sent out and we had authority over demons, we were casting out demons, we were healing people, what, what, would, what would you do? you come and report back to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, that was a real bummer of a mission. No, you wouldn't. You would be excited like they were. There's an exclamation point there in the English translations for a reason. There is zeal and enthusiasm in the reporting back of the disciples to Jesus. Lord, look at this. This is incredible. Jesus' response was this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So far, so good. It sounds like Jesus is saying, yes, that's exactly your response. It should be, I'm so excited at what we've been given the power to do. And now you might think, oh, here's Killjoy. Nope, this is Jesus redirecting the heart to true joy. It's amazing. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. What? That the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in that. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And you see how this 
fits so perfectly with Brocco's definition especially. He's saying to us that true joy is based upon our present possession of a happy state. Our names are written in the book. It's the same book that John describes in the book of Revelation. Every name that was found written in the book of life was received into eternal fellowship with the great God of heaven. But all those whose names were not written in that book were cast into outer darkness, into eternal fire where the worm does not die. You see what Jesus is saying. This joy is a matter of life and death. Those who possess it have eternal life. It's the gift of God. You ought to rejoice at what God has done in and for you now and forevermore. It is not ultimately based on temporal things. And it's not dictated by our circumstances. Well, we have a number of illustrations of true joy as we round out our survey from the Word of God. If you Look at Acts chapter 16, verses 22 to 25. Acts 16, 22 to 25. Paul and Silas are in big trouble here in the middle of Acts chapter 16. We pick up at verse 22. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their, the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Doesn't sound like a great prescription for happiness here for Paul and Silas. Verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, this will blow your mind. What would have been the general mood of these many times beaten ones under this kind of persecution, now they're in jail, they're in the stocks, you would think, what a perfect recipe for misery. So how did they express the deepest, inmost state of being that they experienced in that moment? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Really? Their outward condition is utterly miserable. It is painful. It is worthy of lamentation. And here they are, in the face of such persecution, of such misery, and they're singing songs to the Lord. Oh, beloved, this is true joy in action. A rejoicing always in the Lord who had done great things for them. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, another profound example of the same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 4 through 10. Back in verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God... We commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Now, that's a pretty joy-sapping list, it would seem. 
But he continues, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful. See, he doesn't dumb it down. He doesn't say the presence of joy just relieves you of any sorrows. No, we were sorrowful and we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Even he concludes as having nothing, and yet as those who have all things. This is an otherworldly perspective. This is an otherworldly way, beloved, to live. And finally, and this will take us into the second point, which is the source of all true joy, Hebrews chapter 12, a passage that many of you grew up memorizing and probably know pretty well. Paul writes, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, how do we run the race? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what, children? The joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of the Hebrews says, consider Him. Look to Him. Follow Him. Why? Because everything He did was for the joy that was placed before Him by His Father who was in heaven. Well, this leads us then to consider the true source of all of our joy, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that He freely and graciously brings. Now we're back to Isaiah chapter 9. We read the text, we're not going to reread it, but just notice the relationship between the first half of the passage and the more familiar part of the passage. You know, the passage begins by talking about the deep darkness, spiritual darkness, that the nations find themselves in. And then the passage moves on to the more familiar, which is that prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who is this one that's going to come? A child will be born. A son is going to be given. And the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called, and you know the rest of the story. If you've forgotten or you've never read Isaiah 9, perhaps you've heard Handel's Messiah. Uh, It's the same content either way. But beloved, this is the announcement of the supreme Savior of the nations. Cast against the backdrop of the deep spiritual darkness in which we all dwell by our nature. We are all by nature the enemies of God, The Bible says very clearly there is none who is good. There is none who does good. There is none righteous. No, not one. We all, if left to ourselves, would continue to dwell in the deepest spiritual darkness and rebellion against God. But God has made a prescription through the birth of this child. Yes, children, baby Jesus in the manger. 
who has come to redeem a people for himself. But what will be the result? And that's what's couched very subtly. We, we can read the first part and we hear deep darkness and we think, okay, I get that. And then we come to the child is born and we get that. We've heard that a million times. It's glorious. But we sometimes miss verse 3. What will be the result of his coming? It'll be the multiplying of the nations. It'll be the increase of its joy. Rejoicing before the Lord as when the harvest and the spoils of the harvest are brought in. And so, beloved, we need to see that the purpose of God sending His Son into the world is that He would rejoice and make glad and fill with joy the recipients of those who are united to Jesus Christ through faith in Him. But the prophet Isaiah continues, if you jump forward to verse, or rather chapter 49 and verse 13, another amazing expression of it. Sing for joy, O heavens, exalt, O earth, break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Now notice, this is in the midst of God's people saying the Lord has forsaken us. The Lord has forgotten us. That's verse 14. And what does the Lord go on to say? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? And he says, the unthinkable, even these may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. What is he saying? Yes, you are in deep darkness. Yes, you have been in rebellion against me, but I will provide the remedy. I will provide for you the source of truest and purest heavenly joy. And it will come to you in no other way and through no other person than the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you are seeking joy or your happiness in anyone or anything else in all of this world, you need to repent You need to turn from that and you need to embrace the only source of true joy, the Lord Jesus Himself. This is heavenly joy. This is God-produced joy. This is lasting joy. This is joy that can stand up amongst trials and afflictions and persecutions and disappointments. It is the possession of every believer who's united to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we continue to think through what Isaiah tells us about these things. Chapter 61, verses 1 through 3, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And again, this is the servant. This is Jesus Christ. Before He came down out of heaven to earth, speaking prophetically, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. And now listen to this. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. The Lord will make us joyful 
now and forevermore in Jesus Christ for the purpose that His name would be glorified and praised. And finally, we see in verse 7 the scope of true joy through Jesus Christ the source. Instead of your shame, there'll be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. And here it is. They shall have, possess everlasting joy. A joy that cannot be taken away no matter what the circumstances. Have you ever wondered about that? You know, we have a dear brother in our presbytery, our regional church down in Atlanta, who is a native of the country of Eritrea. And many of you have heard about this before, but he was imprisoned several times. And on these occasions, he would be put into a shipping container. And when it was hot, they would just close the lid and would deprive of water and would do all kinds of other horrendous things and would just bake him. And when it was cold, they would open up the side panel and they would spray with cold water the victims that were inside. They would beat them mercilessly and they would always dangle the carrot of relief before them. All you got to do is just sign the recantation of your faith. Just promise you're never going to preach in Jesus' name. There's the door. You can walk right out. And they would have let him go. It wasn't just a, a bait and switch. It was true. You just sign it. We'll never bother you again. How in the world do you not sign that form? How in the world do you endure such suffering? How in the world do you stand firm when everything in your senses is exploding for relief? When your cries to heaven seem to go unanswered, Lord, deliver me out of the hand of my oppressor, and there's silence from heaven. How do we endure? It is only through the possession of an everlasting joy that is rooted in the source our Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, the day may come when we're called upon to suffer similar things. We don't know the future. And we say this all the time. The Lord knows. But beloved, what if the day comes? We don't have any guarantees that it won't. Our country, it seems, has been living on lots of borrowed time for a long time now. Sinning boldly in the face of our God. And so what if that time comes where to name the name of Christ gets you where our brother Zeki found himself in Eritrea. What will hold us up? What will keep us from denying the faith? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, the source of everlasting joy. And then one passage outside of Isaiah, Zechariah, chapter 9. Zechariah, chapter 9. And verse 9. And this is, of course, another prophetic announcement of the Savior to come. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And you know this is quoted verbatim in the gospel accounts for Jesus Christ as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem as the one that should have been received as their king. But what is urged upon the people as he rides forth in the splendor of his kingdom and his kingship, it is joy and rejoicing. We see it there as they 
proclaim His praises as He rides on the colt. And we should see it in our own lives as we contemplate the effect of His great salvation that He has given freely to us. Martin Luther, uh, commenting on Zechariah 9, 9 says, For therefore He has sent His Son, not to oppress us, but to cheer our souls in Him. For this cause the prophets, the apostles, and Christ Himself do exhort us, yea, command us even, to rejoice and to be glad. Rejoice, he quotes it, daughter of Zion, be joyful, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh to thee. And we can recall places in the New Testament where the Old Testament is quoted in this regard. And just very quickly, remember in a text like Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching that first Pentecost sermon. And what does he mention? Among many other things, he mentions Psalm 16. And what does Psalm 16 talk about? Sometimes it's called the resurrection psalm of the Old Testament. But how does he connect it to Christ? Therefore, psalmist writes, my heart was glad. At what? At the fact that he did not allow my flesh to see decay. He would raise me up in the resurrection. You make me full of gladness with your presence. And Psalm 45 Quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, God, your God, has anointed you, Jesus Christ, with the oil of gladness beyond all of your companions. Jesus Christ is the possessor and the source of all true joy. But then returning for a brief moment to John chapter 16. John 16. We've seen verse 33. Why does Jesus say all of these things to them? We've looked at some of his language from the upper room already. But he writes, John does, I've said these things to you, that Jesus says in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And in overcoming the world, he becomes the source of everlasting joy and gladness for the people of God. And then Luke 10. Again, we've seen it already. We saw that they should not ultimately be rejoicing in the fact that they've been given authority over even demons and spirits, which is pretty remarkable in and of itself, but rejoice in what? That their names are written in the book. That they belong to the Lord. But then he continues. And as we look Further here, Jesus, verse 21, in that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That sounds an awful lot like the fruit of the Spirit is joy. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, this is the only verse in all the Bible that Jesus actually says, I rejoice. It describes His rejoicing. 
And what's he rejoicing in? One commentator says this, this is godly gladness. The Holy Spirit fills Jesus with such joy at two things, the divine work and the divine will, that it can only be properly expressed in praise and thanksgiving to the Almighty Father. This is what should come to mind when we think of the joy promised to us in the fruit of the Spirit. Now, how do we reconcile this? Jesus, on the one hand, we sing in our hymnal and we see it in the Scriptures, He was most certainly a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And yet, He is the man of joy and of gladness. What do you do with that? Beloved, that's your life too. That's your life in Jesus Christ. You are a child of God and full of sorrows in this life. But you are a child of God in Jesus Christ, full of an everlasting joy that can never be taken away in the midst of those sorrows. And ultimately, as pilgrims, you are trotting a path where those sorrows will one day give way to eternal, everlasting, ceaseless joy where every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. But Jesus, the man of sorrows, was the man of joy. B.B. Warfield has a profound comment on this. He said that Jesus had not the shallow joy of mere pagan delight in living. You know, there were unbelievers that hated God that had a real zeal for living, kind of a zest for life, as it were. Nor, he says, the delusive joy of a hope destined to failure. But the deep exaltation of a conqueror setting captives free. This joy underlay all his sufferings and shed its light along the whole thorn-beset path which was trodden by his torn feet. And again, we hear the writer to Hebrews telling us it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and scorned its shame. He didn't do it for himself, beloved. He did it for you if you belong to him. And so finally, we need to ask the question, what does this mean for me? In one sense, it should be patently obvious. We should be able to just wrap up shop here and you figure it out with the grace of the Spirit and go home. Let me spell it out just a little bit. And this is using, again, a brockle for help. Here are some implications of this everlasting joy that we possess for life and covenant with our great God. He says this, first of all, believers, even the weakest, maybe that's how you feel here today. Yeah, I'm a believer, but I, I am weak as the day is long. It characterizes me. I'm beset by weaknesses. But, he says, you are, even the weakest believer, entitled to and have reason for joy. For it is one of the promises of God's covenant of grace. When he says, I will be your God and you will be my people, I will send Jesus Christ and he will shed his blood and that shed blood on the cross will cover over all of your sins and I will cast those sins into the depths of the sea and I will remember them no more. This is the source, even for the weakest believer, 
on his worst day in this life. Joy, inexpressible, as Peter says, and full of glory. He promises us this abiding joy in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our sins, in the midst of our afflictions. We have been delivered. God has reconciled you to himself. He's taken enemies and made them into friends. He's taken slaves and he has turned them into sons. This is what God does by his grace in the gospel. So, beloved, rejoice. Rejoice. Break forth in an expression of the joy that can never be taken away from you and praise the holy name of God for such a great inheritance in Jesus Christ. Secondly, ground all of your faith and all of your hope upon His promises, upon His provision, upon His holy word, and not on your experience or your circumstances. Now this is hard. Because all of us have hardwired into our DNA somewhere, somehow, to be dictated to by our circumstances. You know, whatever befalls me, I'm going to react in kind. And so if you are, for instance, unkind to me, I am hardwired, because of that remnant of sin, to be unkind to you. And you know how this plays out in so many different ways. But here, Abrakul is saying this. Again, you have to root yourself to the Word of God. You have to depend, as Jesus did in the midst of temptation, on every word which proceeds forth out of the mouth of God. The Word of God has to be your standard. If you judge by what your eyes can see, you are going to draw very wrong conclusions about what God is doing out there in the world, and in particular in your life. In other words, if I suffer, if I sorrow, if something bad happens to me, if somebody doesn't like me, then God is afflicting me because He's displeased with me, or because He's forsaken me, because He's not with me anymore, because He's not going to be kind to me anymore. And this is the way the psalmist expresses himself over and over again. Look at Psalm 77 in your spare time this afternoon, and look at the way that the psalmist reasons. He pours out what his eyes have seen, and then he remembers the works of God. He remembers God's promises, and it delivers him through that veil of tears and the sorrows that his eyes can see. Notice, it does not relieve the sorrow. It does not take away the affliction. It doesn't even alter your circumstances themselves. But what true, rooted, eternal, abiding joy in Jesus Christ does by the Spirit has caused you to be able to think upon your state that God has been merciful to you when we say, how are you doing? And somebody responds, better than I deserve. Truer words were never spoken. They can be spoken cliche. They can be spoken offhand, without any thought, but they're true. How are you doing on your worst day in all of your life at a concentration camp? Better than I deserve, God's people would have said from the midst of those camps. That staggers the mind, it baffles the world, but it's the possession of the one united to Jesus Christ through faith. And so, Thirdly, 
Brockle says, and this is very much in line with what we've already said, continually, continually, don't stop exercising faith in Christ. Meditate on the truth. Fill your minds and hearts with the root and the source of all of your joy so that your experience of that abiding joy will not be squelched in the moment of temptation in the moment of sorrow, in the moment of affliction, in the moment of disappointment. And beloved, we all have had those points in our lives where we have been bitterly disappointed. We've been hurt. We have no idea what's going on or how to fix it, how to alter it. And wisely, we need to turn to the source of our joy and exercise faith in Him, entrusting ourselves to the One who has loved us and given Himself for us. Walk by faith, beloved, in Christ, not by sight. And finally, number four, Bracco writes, be on guard against yielding to a sinful routine in your life. He explains, even if th- there are no great falls, this yielding, this drowsy carelessness, he calls it, will readily rob us of this joy. And he means the experience of this joy. Nothing can take this joy from us, beloved. It is our possession. It is rooted in our state of being justified, declared not guilty before the bar of God's justice through the work of Christ. It can never be taken from us But our experience of that joy can be muted, can be threatened. And he says this spiritual drowsiness, this carelessness of our life, this not paying attention to what glorifies God and just sort of living carelessly for ourselves will rob us of this joy. And he encourages the saints upon falling, and we will fall. Arise each time again and immediately run to the fountain once more. This will, time and again, quicken joyfulness and rejoicing in the hearts of God's people. I want to close with this and I want to lead us to the Lord's table with the very Word of God. Isaiah chapter 65 You might have said, you know, way back in the beginning of the sermon, which seems like an eternity ago now, you mentioned this abiding, eternal aspect of joy. And we couldn't possibly conclude a sermon on Christian joy without seeing what the end of the game looks like, what the end of history, what the end of the purpose of God looks like and how it relates to joy. And so as we look at Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 17, we read this. This is where all human history is headed. This is God's end game, if you will. This is where He's going to bring all of those who have been united to Jesus Christ through faith in Him. This is what He's going to do for us. Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be 
a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. And do you see the mutual joy? Everlastingly, God will rejoice in us, His people. Everlastingly, He will make us to rejoice in Him. This is the glorious end for which you have been created to rejoice always in the Lord. You remember, you don't have to bother to turn there, but just a brief passage in Matthew 21. It's reproduced in other gospel accounts. But you remember that language? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into what? The joy of your master. That's what's coming for all of you whose hope and whose joy is rooted to and grounded in Jesus Christ. And finally, Revelation 21. You knew we had to go to the end to talk about ultimate things here. Revelation chapter 21. And backing up to verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Sorrow, beloved, is for a night. Joy comes in the morning. And it comes only in and through Jesus Christ. May all of your hope, may all of your joy, may all of your delight be in Him. Let's pray. Lord, how we rejoice to know that we have such a Savior who has purchased for us this happy state that we have been declared not guilty, even though by nature we are most guilty. That we have been declared righteous in your sight, though by nature we are most unrighteous. That you have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and determined to remember them no more. That you have adopted us who were rebels against you, your enemies, as sons and daughters into your family, promising to be God to us and to our children forever. Oh Lord, that you are even now about the business of making us more like Jesus Christ, we pray that we would be conformed into the image of the perfectly joyful man, even Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. And we ask, O Lord, that You would orient our minds at every point to the One in whom we have an unshakable, everlasting possession of joy, in eager anticipation for that great day when joy Himself will come back down out of heaven 
and receive us into eternal joy. World without end. Lord, we long for it. We pray that you will uphold us through all of the sorrow, the sin, and the misery of this life with a joy inexpressible and full of glory. We rejoice, O Lord, to have our names written in the book of life. We rejoice to be united to Jesus Christ through faith. We rejoice to be called the children of God. We rejoice that Jesus is coming again for us and will make every wrong right. Oh Lord, give us a faithful expression of this joyful possession that is ours in King Jesus. For we pray in His name. Amen.